Hey readers, welcome to Your Bookstore Besties. We're your hosts, Rachel and Becky, best friends who met while working at an indie bookstore. We love chatting about all things books, and we're so happy that you joined today. Hi, everybody. Welcome back to Your Bookstore Besties. I'm Becky. And sadly, uh, Rachel is not here today. We just could not sync our schedules today, but I have with me um, a second-time guest, Dr. Don Holmes, Professor Dr. Don Holmes. Would you like to say hello, Don? Hey, everybody. I'm so excited to be here. Well, you sound so excited. <laughs> um, well, before we start, Don, um, what is a fun fact about yourself? You know, I know I, I just picked this in my brain. So I would say that when I was in Spain, I was in Granada. This was like back in 2012. I was in uh-huh. college and I had the opportunity to see not only like the great um, Alhambra um, site, but also the mm-hmm. grave sites of Isabel and Ferdinand, uh, two important historical figures that uh, uh-huh. patronage to Christopher Columbus, of course, to quote unquote discover this part of the world. <laughs> yeah. Uh, but yeah, so that was very interesting, you know, seeing that, you know, historical site. Yeah. Were you studying abroad? Yeah, I was studying Spanish in Spain for... Wait, I didn't know you studied Spanish. Yeah, I don't know. I, I shame, Shamefully, I don't know as much as I should know uh, now. Okay. Mm-hmm. Uh, falling off from practice. But yeah, I studied Spanish in Spain and I also studied Spanish in Costa Rica the year prior. <gasps> Yeah. Oh my, that's so interesting because I did a study abroad in Costa Rica and I have also visited Spain. So I feel like we're like twinning over here. Yeah, we're kindred spirits in that regard. Yeah. Yeah, that's so fun. Okay, so my fun fact is really silly, but I did not realize until a couple weeks ago that there were two Kelsey brothers, as in like Taylor Swift's boyfriend. So I kept seeing like photos and videos of. The brother, I, I actually don't know his name. I'm so sorry. <laughs> but I would see him and be like, did he lose a bunch of weight? Did he gain a bunch of I was just very, very confused seeing oh, yeah. the two Kelsey oh, brothers. Kelsey? No, they're different teams. Oh, um, they're, okay, okay. I know neither of us are football people. I don't I don't really know. I'm so sorry, guys, if you're like a Swifty or whatever. But yeah, I was very confused for a while because I thought this dude was just like gaining and losing weight. <laughs> so then I realized no, that they were brothers. About the Kelsey from because he was in the Super Bowl, right? Am I correct? Yeah, I, yeah. I, Taylor Swift's boyfriend, yes. Okay. <laughs> Travis. So that Eric. was the one that got into it with the coach. I just didn't yes, yes. Something about mm-hmm. that uh, this mm-hmm. morning, uh, or yes. well, a couple of days ago. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and they, they won. Um, of course, if you have heard <laughs> the yeah, 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 the Chiefs. Yeah. Exactly. I was like, what is the name of that team? God, I sound so dumb right now. <laughs> you know, another fun fact about the Super Bowl this year, mm-hmm. as history is, you know, oftentimes, you know, people oftentimes think history is so far ago. And, but, you know, it made history in terms of being the most watched um, mm, television yeah. you know, event in the history of television, you know, which apparently it topped the, uh, the moon landing last year, but the moon landing. Yeah. You know, which. I wasn't alive ending, so, you know, Mm -hmm. not fair. Yeah, yeah. If this is your first time hearing Don's voice, he was in episode 17 that um, went live on February 17th of last year, and we talked about Phyllis Wheatley, part of his research, and it was a really good episode. I re-listened to it this week just to 
make sure I didn't re-ask you any of the same questions. And I was like, oh man, this is a good episode. We were asking good questions and Don is so smart. So I was thinking, I was thinking about that this week before um, we interviewed you. So I just read um, this paper on that. Mm-hmm. This I, oh, I'm another grading, one? Yeah, this this week I'm grading papers and a student wrote a very a very interesting paper on Wheatley. Yeah. Did they um did they say good things about her? Well, they, of course, I think they approached her as a complicated historical figure and they, you know, mm-hmm. produced some good scholarship, basically thinking about um, perhaps like very similar to my own work on Wheatley, the tension of her world that she lived in. Mm-hmm. Uh, and they, you know, made it clear that she was this Black African woman trying to make sense of her kind of Anglo Christian upbringing. Um, and right, yeah. to talk about how that's been explicated throughout her poetry, the contradictions, the conflictions. It was very well done. Mm-hmm. Yeah. yeah. Good. Good. I'm glad to hear that. Yeah. Um, so I kind of have today's um, discussion kind of divided into to three sections. Um, the first section, I kind of want to uh, talk to you as a reader um, because I actually don't really know about your reading taste. And I was just like really curious and I want to hear a little bit of your background um, as you as a, as a reader. So the first question I have for you, Don, is do you like reading? Yeah, I really do love reading. Um, I think that, you know, um, I don't know, maybe it's because of when I came to reading, uh, obviously in the 1990s, that sounds so old, right? But anyway, <laughs> I just always had this infatuation with books in general. Mm-hmm. You know, I love to be able to like engage the text, especially if it's something that um, I'm, you know, really interested in and something that I'm really, you know, wanting to get into. But, you know, I think we can learn so much about uh, ourselves, but also to like how uh, insanely profound the human mind is to like imagine mm-hmm. all these different kinds of ways of saying the same thing, but different kinds of ways of saying different things, new ways of inventing, uh, yeah. you know, language, the fluidity of language. So, yeah, I really do enjoy like that process. Mm-hmm. Reading. Now, you read a lot for research, but what was the last fun book that you read? The last fun book that I read, um, well, I just recently reread The Martian. Um, I think it's a, I think it's a fun book. I like the drama in it. I like the mm-hmm. kind of rising action uh, in The Martian. Uh, mm-hmm. So I recently reread that. Um, and then another fun thing that I'm reading, uh, which I may be uh, less of probably current reading, but I'm teaching it as well. And one of mm-hmm. the best things about being an English professor is that you usually get to teach things that you like. Uh, yeah. So I'm teaching this um Novelia by Charles Brockton Brown. It's about, uh, it's called Carwin the Belloquist. It's from like the early 19th century. I know it sounds weird, but uh, it's just a. Wait, can you say the name? Say the name one more time. Carwin, C A R W I N, Uh the Belloquist. Like a Belloquist is like, you know, if you think about a ventriloquist, but a Belloquist would be someone who is just using their voice to mimic without oh, okay. the puppet, for instance. Oh, right? okay. mm-hmm. uh, but anyway, so he has this kind of, he's a very interesting character. So it's an early piece of uh, American fiction. Um, and Carwin is, you know, this really, you know, wishy-washy kind of curious figure that exists mm-hmm. in this really wonky, it's a, it's a, I guess a regular universe, but the universe is wonky because he has these eerie powers or what have you. But he's just mm-hmm. basically training his muscles to do these things. But anyway, it's just a very interesting um, uh, short story that 
that mm-hmm. never was finished, by the way. So we don't know um, how it all ends. Oh, huh. uh, perspective. Yeah. Wow. Huh. So when you do read, how do you typically read? Are you a physical book? Like, do you prefer hardcover versus paperback? Are you an e-reader? Do you like audiobooks? Tell me how you read. Yeah, I prefer the the just the book. It can be hardcover or paperback. Mm-hmm. It, doesn't, it doesn't bother me that much. Well, I, if it's you know for from having to take notes out of it or something, the hardback uh-huh. is probably better because it opens and closes. Uh, yeah, yeah. Um, yeah. But I prefer the paper. You know, especially mm-hmm. if it's something that I need to like engage in deeply. I like to mark it up and write notes in the margin or, you know, I, you know, underline things and things that I want to like transcribe and copy down in my notes, uh, but just mm-hmm. also underline things that are interesting that if I had to come back to the text, I can go straight to those points, you know, mm-hmm. um, For and, and that's mainly for like my academic reading. Um, right. But yeah, I prefer, I prefer paper, but I, I can read ac- for research type things. I'm fine with looking at it online, but I... Okay. You know, I prefer to like buy the book and have the book. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. What about so you? Do you, when you, do you prefer that? What What do you prefer? I actually do all of it. Um, okay. I yeah. listen to audiobooks to and from work. Um, and then I'm always reading a physical book, like when I'm home. Um, and I do have an e-reader for like advanced reader copies of books that I. Um, I can download and read them on my e-reader before mm. books come out so that I can like read them and things like that. But I actually do it all. Um, but if I had to pick between hardcover and paperback, I would probably choose paperback just because they're less heavy. <laughs> you can bring them yeah. more places. And you can store them so, yeah. more efficiently. Yeah. And then I think for traveling, I prefer my e-reader because sometimes like if you're on a good vacation, like I read a lot on vacation. So mm. Like it's nice to have multiple books just in a tiny little thing that I can bring bring with me. So yeah, well now see, I'm a bad reader if I'm on the beach. I you know how often I'll take a book with me on the beach to read, and I'll probably get a paragraph in. And well, what do you do on the beach then? You just like sleep? I, yeah, I'm knocked out. I'm I my okay. eyes. The only thing I see is darkness. You know, okay. uh, which is great, right? You know, it's it's awesome that you could you relax. Know, yeah, yeah, help relax you. But mm-hmm. I never get any reading done there. um so let's talk about when you were a kid did you read as a kid and if so what type of books did you gravitate gravitate towards like as a kid and then you know a teenager yeah I remember being I got into reading right around the sixth grade I I remember it was my second time doing sixth grade I felt the first time and I remember yeah it was because I you know I was um being a very bad kid and, and not oh listening. I didn't know that about you hmm. yeah I had this great sixth grade teacher who was like you know very encouraging and you know and she taught me to not think about reading as um, something that one just had you know you have to do it to 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 get by but that reading can be like you know enjoyable and that or you can also read mm-hmm. to learn how to write yourself you know if you want to tell stories. Mm-hmm. And, and perhaps that's one of the best ways to learn how to become a writer is that you read well. Um, but I remember mm-hmm. the sixth grade, we were, I think we read um, uh, this story called My Side of the Mountain, I think is the name of it, right? Yeah, with mm-hmm. uh, Gene Craighead George. George, um, And was it about this young man in the Catskill Mountains? His name was Sam. Uh, and Sam did all sorts of, you know, miraculous things such as boiling water and like lettuce or... <laughs> 
you know, and he trained his falcon. I forget the falcon's name now, but he trains this falcon to be like so, you know, like a almost, you know, like a capable human companion. Um, but anyway, it was such a fascinating uh, story about like independence and imagination. Um, so I just remember that story being really impacting from my youth. And then, of course, reading uh, in terms of, you know, going into school. So reading what uh, they would put in front of us. I remember there was this mm-hmm. other series of books that I read um, that's really coming to mind. It was about these tw- uh, teen witches. Oh, my gosh. What was Is it Twitches? What was the name of the? Oh, I, th- I think so. That sounds right. Twitches. I can't remember specifically the the name of it, but I remember reading that series as well uh, when I was Mm -hmm. young. Um, And then as a teenager, I think that's when I started to get myself more modeled into like reading history things and historical things. So I would gravitate towards like biographies. I remember being in high school um, and I would love to read different biographies of like famous Americans, like Oscar de la Hoya, and people like that. Oh. And just, you know, just these little, because uh, I was always, uh, I think even then I didn't know it, but I was always interested in the ways in which humans, of course, use language, but how th- are we using language to describe humans? So I guess this preoccupation with people in, in the past, right? And so then that began to begin to color in the kinds of texts that I would, you know, go to, go to. Um, and I finally say, I remember one of the, my favorite stories in high school was Silas Minor. It was, oh, I, yeah, I really liked that one. That, yeah, I remember. I think I was like the only one in the class that really liked the story because everyone thought it was boring, but I thought it was. Yeah. I thought it was, I don't think it was riveting. I wouldn't say that, but I thought it was just, <laughs> you know, decently complex enough for me as a yeah. to get through it and tangle with it, you know. Yeah. That's you cool. can't forget Frankenstein. Yeah. Uh Yeah. Do you think that like the books you read in that time period really cemented, like, like put planted the seeds for the work that you do now and in researching, um, you know, the literature that you do currently? I think so. Like in terms of, you know, because in terms of like thinking about how um, literature informs what we know about history. Yeah. You Mm -hmm. know. But I think when I went to college and I knew I was going to study English, I really thought that I was going to do the Harlem Renaissance. Um, oh, uh-huh. yeah, you know, I, I've always enjoyed the Harlem Renaissance. I love to kind of um, think about the explosion of you know all the kind of creative, expressive culture that was created out of that. Not only in Harlem, but also in like Chicago, also here in Pittsburgh as well. Mm-hmm. Um, but then I don't know. I've discovered. Um, my, I was in African-American literature class and my professor taught Phyllis Wheatley and Venture Smith and uh, kind of in order. She taught well, Wheatley first okay. and Venture Smith and it completely changed my, mm. my perception and understanding of how Black people have used the English language. And ever since then, I've kind of focused my attention towards um, pre-Civil War uh, yeah. America. Yeah. I, would say I like to sprinkle though, you know, in terms mm-hmm. of you know, ex- especially in terms of what I teach, um, also in terms of, you know, how I try to use different kinds of text. So like in, in one class I'm teaching this semester, we're looking at texts, you know, all the way up until the 21st century, you know. So yeah. it just depends on, you know, the, the course I'm teaching or trying to design sometimes as well. 
I can. How many to. classes are you teaching right now? Only two. Okay. What are the topics? So my uh, one class I'm teaching is called uh, Origins of American Literature to 1860. Uh, mm -hmm. One of my students last semester described the class because I teach American literature through this idea that, you know, early America was a violent, uncertain, chaotic place. Uh, it was very unsettled. And as it be, you know, began to shape and settle itself, you get the see some of the clarities that we're talking about today. But we talk a lot about, you know, the violent nature that was, you know, early America. Uh, and so one of my students said that my class, which goes up to 1860, mind you, our last text is from 1858. Uh, but he uh, said that this class is like a cliffhanger, you know, it ends right before, you know, the Civil War. So that's one class that I'm teaching. Uh -huh. teach and that's where we're reading Charles Brockton Brown, the, the text uh -huh. I mentioned earlier. And then my other class is a course in Black rhetoric, uh, and we're thinking about the different kinds of ways in which uh, African-American people have used rhetoric in the United States. Like this week, we read Lorraine Hansberry, A Raisin in the Sun. So yeah, we, we, we kind of jump around a, a bit to think about uh, the different applications of rhetoric you know, throughout the years. Cool. Awesome. Um, the next question I have for you, so as you know, it's February, it's Black History Month. Um, I know a lot of, uh, well, I don't say a lot, but I know some white people who are trying to read books by black authors this, mm -hmm. this month as, you know, part of their goals. I was wondering if you could recommend some books if, you know, I, I'm a white listener and I want to start reading black authors, but I don't really know where to start. Do you have any suggestions for for them? Um, let's see. I mean, it's, I mean, I think, you know, depending on, I would tell them to do it this way, right? Is to, as you asked me earlier, you know, what kind of books do you like to read? And so I think the same question applies. If someone say, what kind of books do you like to read? So I like to read science fiction books. Yeah. Books, then they should just look for, if they want to read a black science fiction author, then they should just look for those kinds of, you know, books, right? Yeah. Um, and I'm sure they'll be able to find a great deal, you know, uh, of those books. I don't think there are any because I, I hate to kind of go into like canon production. Like there are certain books one must read, you know. Yeah, I was going to ask you that. Yeah, a lot of them can, I think, be thoughtful and, you know, um, productive lenses into not only the black experience, but how, you know, the those particular writers are using language to make cultural meanings, you know, apparent, you know, so, mm -hmm, mm -hmm. so that would be my suggestion and recommendation. And I think they'll find like a plethora of great, you know, yeah. in that kind of way. But if they're looking for something to, you know, provoke them, um, I don't know, something uh, would, would be interesting. I read every summer, The Known World by Edward P. Jones. It's a book about, mm -hmm. Uh, slavery. Um, it's a, I think they perhaps put it in the category of what they call the neo-slave narrative. But nevertheless, it's a wonderful, um, wonderfully written book, a brilliantly written book. Um, it's like, it's gainfully complex as much as it is simple. Um, mm -hmm. And I think that people, if they want something to, it's a Pulitzer Prize winning book, so they're okay. looking for highbrow, quote unquote, mm -hmm. whatever that means. Uh, that would be a, a book to go to. And I only recommend it because I read it every summer because I think it's a great achievement in um, a great achievement in literature, you know? Yeah. 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 I, I just read um, the color purple last week and I had never oh, seen yeah. the movie or read it. And so um, the first, the first page I was shocked because the mm -hmm. main character, you know, 
um, is hurt by her father. (laughs) Um, So I was really shocked, but it had a really hopeful ending, which I was really glad I I finished it because it was hard to read. Yeah. Would you know, you you mentioned something so important, Becky. A, I have an original copy of The Color Purple. Oh, no uh, way. That's cool. Yeah, I know. It's one of my most sacred possessions. I know. It's mm-hmm. a, and it's only from what, like 1983. But you mentioned, I think, one of the most important through lines that the first movie with Steven Spielberg with The Color Purple, well, I guess they kind of hint towards it or what have you. But uh, that book is about hopefulness. It's a tough yeah. It is a difficult book, right? Because yeah. I think one of the things that Walker wants to prod us on is that that kind of healing, that kind of traumatic experience that people go through and personal traumatic experience, as you described at, at the story's opening, but also the structural, the collective traumatic experience of that entire community, that kind of healing takes, you know, a great deal of work, you know, but mm-hmm. as yeah. the, the goal of the story is to suggest that we must be about that work, you know, yeah. uh, and that, yeah. you know, that, that sense of hopefulness is still within that text, even though it's so weighty and so heavy. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I was sobbing at the end of it. Um, yeah. I was like, finally, there's some hope for this poor woman. <laughs> you should read her other, her other one, The Third Life of Grange Copeland. Okay, I don't think I've heard of that one. Yeah, that's our first that novel from 1970, I think. It, it, it okay. Appeared. Yeah. What's that it's one a, about? What's I don't know what it's, it's about. It has a very similar this this sort of similar through line. So it follows basically the three lives of Grange Copeland, if one could describe it that way. So Grange Copeland is the the first character. He has a son. His son has a granddaughter, okay. and it kind of tells the you know. Uh, the narrative about Grange, who is this very horrid person, and that horridness, you know, passed down to his son Brownfield, despite Brownfield trying to be, uh, you know, a little bit, a, a bit different from his father. Yeah. He describes his aunt Harris rhapsodically moving, right? The, uh-huh. the, the way he's able to kind of recognize things so beautifully, but that's kind of broken because of his father's part. But anyway, it's a very interesting story as well. I don't want to spoil okay, it. Okay, yeah, I'll add that to my list. Books. That's awesome. Um, now I kind of want to change gears here. I was wondering if you could tell us about some little-known Black authors that maybe mainstream America um, might not know about. Well, all the ones I study are like you know way back in the day. Um, That's great. I'd love to hear about them. <laughs> let's see. Who could I? I, I want. I think. Well, of course, Alice Walker, right? You've already mm-hmm. mentioned her. People, I don't think, I don't think people have read, you know, the the Color Purple as much as they've probably watched the movie. And I mm-hmm. think it would be great if people, you know, were to read uh, that particular movie. I mean, read that read that particular novel, uh, especially if they're looking for something to kind of counter the the film. I'm not sure about the new movie though. I haven't seen the new one with Fantasia. I know uh, it's a musical. Do you like musicals? Yeah. One? Yeah, I don't. I don't mind a good if it's good. You know, yeah. I have a. You know, I can give you my favorite musicals, and you know, on one hand, which you know, I don't want to because <laughs> the people who really love musicals are probably going to like laugh in my face. Um, who else could I recommend? Um, oh, well, I think more people are, are, are reading Wheatley now, right? Which you mm-hmm. know, it's fine. But then maybe I think that people should probably start trying to turn their attention back, especially when it comes to African-American 
literature, maybe just some texts from the 20th century, but, you know, uh, yeah. right before, um, you know, World War II would be great. So going back to look at, you know, some texts from the Harlem Renaissance, some texts from the Black Arts Movement, which would okay. be inclusive to Alice Walker. But of course, you have the, the powerhouses like Toni Morrison's, but Toni Morrison also edited a lot of work from people um, uh, coming out of that particular era as well. And um, Gail Jones would be another uh, great uh, author, especially if you like The Color Purple, you would mm -hmm. like her um, her novel, um, Corrigadora, that's what it's called. Yeah. Corrigadora? Corrigadora. It's, a, it's, okay. it's like a Brazilian, a Portuguese oh. word. Oh, okay. Um, so that would be a, a good turn um, as well. Oh, there's this other great fiction that just that's very recent though. It's called um, "An American Marriage," I think. It's called. It's by Tiara Jones. That's um, all. My, I want to read that so bad. It looks really I good. I mean, I think it's. I mean, you know, I wish I could like. You know, there's some frustrating part. You know, uh, parts in the novel. Yeah. Uh, However, it's a, I think it's a, a very well-written uh, uh, novel. It's beautifully written, some beautiful lyrical writing uh, within it. Uh, so I would recommend um, Jones's novel as well. Okay, awesome. That's some, some good suggestions there. Um, the next thing I want to ask you, so when you visited me um, for Thanksgiving, you were talking about some updates on your research about Phyllis Wheatley, I was wondering if there was anything you wanted to add about, you know, your current research since we last saw you, you know, uh, last had you on the podcast a year ago, if there's anything you wanted to, to add or anything you've discovered or read about either Wheatley or any of the, the authors that you, we talked about last year. Yeah. So I have, a, well, I'm still, I was working on the project um, for George Washington's Mount Vernon uh, about Phyllis Wheatley's writing to George Washington, which this is also going to be um, a chapter in my book. I hope it's going to be a chapter in my book um, um, on in terms of like early Black rhetoric and language and literature and culture. Um, but I, you know, I'm pretty much done with that project. Um, just okay. trying to see where, that, where, where it's at the pipeline. But I've since moved back farther to the 17th century. Um, oh. I, yeah, I was. Um, I'd been I was started teaching at Pitt, of course, last semester, and I taught uh, this freedom suit from a woman named Elizabeth Key Grinstead. She was a mixed race woman who sued for uh, her freedom in 1656, well, started in 1655 in Virginia. Uh, and part of the claims that she had to make was that her indentured servitude um, out, you know, lasted the time in, in which it was supposed to last because she had a white father and her white father mm. had set her off to indentured, which was very common because at this time in early America, most of these colonial uh, places followed British common law. Uh, mm -hmm. But the man, her father died. And so when he died, um, the man who uh, had indentured uh, Key um, uh, died as well. And then the state tried to keep her well past, oh. you know, the indentured time. And so she sued for freedom, successfully won her freedom. Wow. Uh, XYZ. And so that particular text, she doesn't write, right? So we have no, she has no textual um, uh, practice within the document itself. But, you know, the document is about her. And, and by an extension, it helps, you know, to kind of color in perhaps some of the other particularities of that time. Mm -hmm. 
African women. So I don't know, it's gotten me thinking a bit more about um, the 17th century and what fruitfulness I think could come out of that. Because I think my part of my, my research for my book that I'm working on is thinking about how or in what ways when Black Africans come into the the rhetorical presence, either white people are writing about them at the time, white uh, Anglo colonials are writing about them at the time, or when they start writing themselves, I'm concerned about what issues they are confronting in an effort to kind of understand the, the temporal chaos that they were uh, involved in. I made a very similar claim in my my article that I wrote about Wheatley a couple of years ago. It's just that you know these people are trying to make sense of a world in which they do not fit. And for many of them following a faith that tells them that they do fit, uh, and many of them mixed race, you know, and uh, being enslaved, you know, by, you know, parents or what have you. So it's so much chaos that um, I think exists in the 17th century that I, I want to look more into as well. Yeah. Don't know how just yet, though, again, because, you know, many of them aren't writing themselves. So as a rhetoric sure, scholar, yeah. it's a bit difficult for me, but, mm-hmm. but we'll see, you know. <laughs> yeah. Uh, didn't you, I think when you were here, when we last saw you, uh, you were working on publishing a book through UNC, correct? No, 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 no. I was um, hoping, I would hope, love to have a book published by UNC. Okay. Yeah. Okay. Or just, okay. you know, when, you, when you're going out for like an academic press, you, mm-hmm. uh, you shoot for the stars. UNC Press is a really good press, you know, so okay. it would be a, a dream to kind of work with them. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. Oh, but no, not yet. One day, maybe when I have you have me on, I can confirm. You know what? You know the press, and yeah, you know, and we'll have to <laughs> all do pre-orders of it. So, yeah. and fingers crossed, it is you and C, but no. Yeah. <laughs> um, do you have any? We're getting here towards the end of our time. Any final thoughts about anything that we discussed um, the, this past half hour? I absolutely do. I think that Ooh. people should. Um, especially your listeners and anyone who's out there, you know, uh, people, you, we have to read and know uh, the rhetorical history of this country just as much mm-hmm. as we want to romanticize about it or know it generally. Um, it does us no good to think that we could conclude so quickly, you know, uh, yeah. what was when we haven't really explored what people actually had to say and and think, and that's, you know, just in so many different ways, it's a rather complex thing to go back and look at. It's very nuanced. Our lives are nuanced as much as they are. We should also think that those who've come before us had very nuanced lives as well. Mm-hmm. And I think that we are required to go back and see what that look, looked like so that we can reconcile such grievances as they exist today, you know. Don, I got a letter in the mail from like this racist organization i don't know how they got my email or i don't know how they got my address or my name but it was like this christian nationalist organization that was like we're fighting against people who think that this country is built on racism and i was like excuse me i was so mad that i even had the audacity to send me this letter but i was just just made me think about you know there definitely was racism and, and is racism in this country and to be like we're fighting against the belief of that. Like, that's so stupid dog whistle. But well, I was pretty mad. I could recommend oh, yeah. a book for that. So I just finished reading it, actually. And this is mm-hmm. a, a book I'm reading for my, my scholarship. But it's a very well written. It's called 13 Clocks. Um, and I think this is the, the shorter version or a different version. He did another version called Common Sense. But this particular version 
It's called 13 Clocks, How Race mm-hmm. United the Colonies and Made the Declaration of Independence. And oh. it's by this uh, historian named Robert G. Parkinson. And it's very well done. He uses early American newspapers, X, Y, and Z, to mm-hmm. think about how uh, in early America, the colonists basically used the, you know, the fear of Native Americans, the fear of mm-hmm. Black Africans yeah. in order to build consensus amongst the wow. colonials to actually fight the British. You know, wow. because you know, most of the folks at the time, they weren't trying to fight the British. It's the British Empire. Why would we do that? And so uh-huh. they, had to, they had to find ways to rhetorically convince people to engage in this war. And one of those were, you know, those determining things that they used, you know, was race itself. You know, it's a very mm. interesting book. Yeah. So. Uh, it's blaming. I mean, it's so funny that history is repeating itself. Like you, you see that mm-hmm. now blaming the other, mm-hmm. you know, immigrants coming in. Like it's, it's so crazy how they're he using the same them, techniques. He calls them prox. He calls them the proxy enemies. Mm-hmm. You know? That's who they were, wow. and they were basically the secondary enemies that was used to, you know, um, push the 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 fever for the American War of Independence. Mm-hmm. Hmm, I'm going to have to add that to my my, my reading list as well. Um, well, thank you so much, Don, for coming on. It's been great chatting with you. I always love chatting with you, but I really appreciate you taking the time to come on the podcast today. Of course. Thank you for having me. It's always so good to chat. Awesome. Well, we'll have to have you on again. So see everybody next week. Every book we mentioned will be in our show notes. So if you didn't catch it, it'll be there. If you don't understand Don's accent, I'm kidding. <laughs> it'll it'll be in the show notes. So we'll see everybody. Sometimes. Yeah, yeah, exactly. (laughs) All right, bye, everybody. Thank you so much for listening to the podcast. You can find us on Instagram at Your Bookstore Besties. Please like, share, and subscribe so more people can listen. Have a beautifully bookish day.